virtual care or remote care delivery is here to stay. The challenge is that if you look at the dramatic rise in telemedicine use during the pandemic in 2020 and the dramatic drop in telemedicine right. in 2021. <laughs> Hi, welcome to HIMSCast. I'm Kat Jorsuch, Senior Editor at Healthcare IT News. If you're anything like me, you've probably been hearing a lot about telehealth. <laughs> How is that for an opening statement for you? But it's true. I mean, ever since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, it seems like we've been hearing a lot about a spike in telehealth usage, how telehealth will last past the public health emergency, and most appropriately for this conversation, how telehealth is expanding beyond what we might traditionally think of as telemedicine, which in a lot of cases means one-on-one -on -one synchronous video conversations. But that's not all it means. We're also seeing a lot of organizations start thinking of virtual care or continue to think of virtual care more as remote patient monitoring solutions or text-based conversations with a chatbot or other ways to connect patients with their care and with their doctors using technology outside the bounds of a brick and mortar facility. So here with me to talk a little bit more about that and about the healthcare at home revolution in general is Dr. Malik Majmadar. He's the co-founder and chief medical officer of Bioformis, which is a Boston-based health tech company that's really focused on virtual care and digital therapeutics. So let's just get started and talk a little bit about how you ended up at Bioformis and what you see as some of the most exciting prospects in terms of care at home today. Sure. So I think just to briefly cover uh, the background in terms of me joining Bioformis, it actually goes way back. You know, I actually met the CEO and co-founder Kuldeep uh, about seven years ago now. He was actually a former student of mine as part of a workshop we did in India with as part of MIT. Hmm. So anyways, I've known Kuldeep for a long time and helped him think through starting the company six and a half, six years ago now. And, you know, initially helped him as an advisor, but then eventually ended up joining the company full time about seven months ago. So that's sort of what brought me to Bioformis. Uh, I think the thing that drew me to Bioformis, uh, outside of the fact that I've known the company and the team for six years, is the, is the recent movement around uh, transition of care from traditional brick and mortar to really what people refer to as, as virtual first. Mm. And I think, you know, when I ran the digital health group at Mass General Hospital years ago, we we're big proponents of the idea that a substantial proportion of care delivered today in the inpatient setting, as well as the outpatient setting, probably can be delivered safely and effectively in the home environment. But only with the pandemic did we see a true acceleration of that movement partly because of policies, partly because of just demand and need for it, uh, and partly because I think customers and patients and consumers are more amenable uh, to delivering, receiving care in the home environment. Definitely. Uh, and I'm wondering whether you could talk through some of the use cases that you see for some of this virtual first care. I think a lot of people think of virtual care as being sort of what we're doing right now, which is synchronous video visits, but there's obviously um, a much wider application of those uses. Could you talk through a couple of those? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good observation, Kat, which is the fact that usually, and, and at least historically, the word telemedicine or telehealth really only involved uh, episodic synchronous live face-to-face -face video visits, not even audio, right? Just video visits. But I think the field uh, has evolved quite a bit, partly because of cap capabilities from technology and software, and partly because of clinical experiences with other use cases. So I think in, at, at this point in time, it spans the entire care continuum of acute care 
post-acute care and chronic care, which is chronic disease management. You know, in my mind, the success of hospital home programs in the acute care setting really demonstrate the capabilities of both uh, virtual care delivery, uh, including clinical interventions, as well as technology to support monitoring and management of patients remotely. And if you can do that for acutely ill patients, everything else that comes after that around chronic care is really substantially in some ways easier because the patient populations are more stable. Hmm. I do believe uh, beyond the care setting, the other dimension in which we've expanded our portfolio is also looking at different disease processes, right? Initially, the episodic visits were really around urgent care, right? I have right. a cough or a cold and I just need an antibiotic. I don't want to go see my primary care doctor and wait for you know, X number of you know, weeks to get appointment. But now we can actually see, and we've had evidence that disease management of conditions, complex conditions like heart failure, you know, cholesterol, uh, high blood pressure, or diabetes can all be done very effectively and safely and efficiently uh, virtually with specialists or primary care doctors delivering that care in a high quality way. Mm. So I think it really spans multiple disease and specialties as well as multiple care settings. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm wondering... I know as a healthcare journalist, and I'm sure also you do um, as someone who's very enmeshed in this space, that a lot of the patients who are most impacted by chronic care issues, how can investors, stakeholders, innovators ensure that programs like these uh, don't leave those kinds of patients further behind? In other words, how can we ensure that the virtual care, virtual first care um, is not exacerbating the digital divide? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I and mean, I think there, the initial concern is definitely around the digital divide, partly mm-hmm. raised by the issues of you know, internet access, Wi-Fi bandwidth, all those sort of things for telemedicine, right, capabilities. But I think the other dimension of that in my mind is actually that technology can actually drive a lot of equity. And this is a whole term of tech equity that's come up, which is the fact that some of these patient populations, underserved, underinsured populations actually had difficult time accessing healthcare. Hmm. Right. So I think by having technology platforms that allow for specialist care virtually or remotely actually gives them access to care in a much more efficient and time efficient way, which I think was not possible before. So in some ways actually adds a lot of, brings a lot of equity or can bring a lot of equity to these patient populations. The other dimension of technology or virtual first care is that even when those patient populations did see clinicians in brick and mortar practices, there's a lot of variability in the quality of care provided across the US. This is well-published data around just the medications you get prescribed at laboratory, screening for cancers and things like that. I think with technology, you can also add a level of standardization Hmm. and reduce the variability in care by having decision trees or algorithms actually assist and augment clinical practitioners in how they make decision care for patients. So in my mind, if this is look at Bioformis and how we built our virtual care platform, it brings in our minds a lot of sort of standardization reduction in variability and higher quality care by leveraging software and data science, as opposed to increasing the digital divide of technology inequities, right? So I think it's in some ways we need policies to drive better internet access and coverage nationally, but then on top of that technology can bring a lot of uh, higher quality care and uh, equity to these patient populations. Hmm. Yeah, that standardization of care point is a really interesting one. And you also mentioned, of course, um, improving broadband access and improving coverage. 
we're at the start of a brand new year here. Uh, what are you excited about in terms of ensuring that virtual care doesn't remain? I mean, I've heard a lot about it peaking. I've heard a lot about it being kind of a flash in the pan. I'm sure you have too. So what do you say to those kinds of assertions that it's a flash in the pan? And what excites you about it going forward in the future? I think the thing I'm super excited about is that uh, everybody, all the stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystem, including patients, providers, payers, pharma, mm -hmm. they've all seen a glimpse of what's possible because of the pandemic with virtual care. And I believe that there's enough evidence of safety, effectiveness, and sort of efficiency, there's a cost of healthcare provision, mm -hmm. that I think virtual care or remote care delivery is here to stay. The challenge is that if you look at the dramatic rise in telemedicine used during the pandemic in 2020 and the dramatic drop in telemedicine right. in 2021, <laughs> I think that speaks to a few things. It speaks to the fact that there was no good infrastructure to actually launch telemedicine in a scalable way pre-pandemic. And people did whatever they could to get these visits going, but there was never sort of the operations and logistics and technology platforms available to do it in a sophisticated way. So those, uh, those systems and practices immediately went back the old way, right? The second was policy. And a reimbursement policies drive a lot of adoption in healthcare, as you know. So some of those immediate policies and waivers by the government helped. But I think if those policies don't sustain beyond the pandemic by commercial payers or government, I think you will see a reduction in usage just purely because of reimbursement issues for providers. But the third is I think we're also getting more sophisticated about understanding the right population of patients mm. and the right technologies that are right fit for purpose. Not every patient should get a virtual care visit. Sometimes they need to be seen in person for many clinical reasons and the other way around as well, right? So I think we have to find just like anything, you know, we have a toolbox now that includes virtual care. Hmm. We as a clinician and a system to figure out how to align the right set of tools to the right clinical situation and the right patients and their preferences. So I think to me, it's all about having optionality, but I believe that virtual care and virtual specialty care will be an important component of that toolbox and more and more will be used uh, across the entire care continuum. You mentioned clinicians viewing it as part of their toolbox. What do you think uh vendors and innovators can do to kind of support clinicians in viewing virtual care as part of that toolbox, especially given the fact that, you know, we're seeing unprecedented levels of strain on the healthcare system with COVID-19. Doctors, nurses, other clinicians are absolutely exhausted. And so they might view virtual care as just another hurdle right. or just another thing to learn. And so how can that be reframed to to portray it more as a tool rather than an additional uh, thing to keep track of. Yeah, you know, as a clinician myself, and also right. when I remember when I was launching some of these programs as part of a digital health uh, group at Mass General, there are two, I think, big barriers to clinician adoption uh, of new technologies, let's say, or new solutions. First and foremost is validation. Is there enough proof that these solutions actually deliver high quality care safely and effectively. And I think part of the role for entrepreneurs and industry is to demonstrate that kind of effectiveness and mm -hmm. validation that drives a lot of confidence and trust in these platforms, right? Number two is workflows. 
that these systems have to be built in a way that are seamlessly integrated with the traditional workflows that clinicians are used to. As you said, you don't want to try a whole new system, a third or fourth login, a fifth <laughs> dashboard. And, and that, that ability to constantly switch platforms you're using actually drives a lot of inefficiency and headache and, and, and it's cumbersome for practitioners. So we have to build them in a way that feels like it's seamless. Hmm. And finally, I think, as you know, Kat, the last five to seven years of this industry, there have been hundreds of fragmented solutions. And at some point, I think clinicians and systems are getting bombarded with uh, various solutions across specialties and across care settings. So how do we think about integrating some of these into a single platform, just like we have electronic medical record as one platform across the entire health system? Are there virtual care platforms that really diminish the burden for practitioners in terms of using multiple solutions? And that, that consolidation integration will also drive adoption just because of the switching cost, right? The context switching. So I think I believe a combination of validation, workflow integration, and some kind of integration or consolidation of these solutions will be required for wide-scale adoption. That makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Majmadar. This has been a great conversation. Before we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts to leave listeners about the future of virtual first care, or what you're excited about for 2022? Uh, well, first of all, thank you again for the opportunity to be on the on the, on the cast um, podcast. And I think I would say you know, the final parting words is I think I really look forward to 2022 as the sort of the key year where we see uh, really explosion of virtual first care across various care settings. I think we've seen it in episodic telemedicine use. I think we'll see that much more use across specialty care, virtual specialty care. I think we'll see hospital at home programs really blossom. 2021 was a great year, but I think you, you can easily see two to three X growth this year in terms of doubling or tripling with hospitals and health systems using or starting hospital at home programs. And I believe uh, we'll see a lot more publications demonstrating the value of virtual first care for various clinical areas to hopefully drive a further policy change and adoption. Well, thank you so much again. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you liked this episode, go ahead and rate us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kat Jersich and thank you all for joining me.